As we turn in our Bibles to uh, the book of Ephesians, uh, let me use this opportunity to ask McLean if you can stand. I'm trying to guess who that might be. Thank you very much. Uh, McLean Wilson has uh, come to join our team of soldiers uh, to reach out to students on our campuses. So she's come uh, to be part of campus outreach. And uh, I've been following um, communication, correspondence, emails from the time uh, her interest was shown. And uh, she began to work towards raising the support for her coming here and just praying in the background that it will finally work out. And so I was delighted when finally she managed to raise the support and uh, papers were lodged with our immigration. The work permit came out and so on. It's nice to finally have you here, McLean, and we trust that uh, the team that is already on the ground is making you feel very much at home. Let's welcome her in our traditional way. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Please be seated. Thank you very much. We hope we'll see your face properly once these masks start coming off and so on. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. We, we're delighted uh, to have you here. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, today's sermon title was very easy to remember, but God. We will see that from four, and uh, in fact, I'll actually go as far as verse five. But let's read the first ten verses of Ephesians and chapter two. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, <clears throat> among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, 
not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, my voice is struggling a little bit. It's been under quite a bit of pressure last week. As I said, for those of you attending the seminar yesterday, that we had about three days, 48 hours of meetings out on the copper belt. And then I was speaking here yesterday in the morning. And then in the afternoon, we were uh, some family function. You know, there's Chilanga Mulilo and so on. But yesterday was Ukuingisha. Some of you will know what that means. And uh, so all the ululating that was happening out in Lusaka West. Uh, yeah. So between Africa and uh, preaching and seminars, that's how my voice is struggling a little bit. But hopefully we will survive. So in case you hear that I'm not sounding quite myself, health-wise I'm all right. It's just a voice. So we're looking together at the unsearchable riches of Christ opened up in this epistle and I always emphasize the aspect of celebrating celebrating the unsearchable riches of Christ we are done with chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul was bringing out the way we are saved from eternity all the way to eternity the work of the Father the work of the Son Holy Spirit. And then we saw Paul celebrating the salvation of the Ephesians in verse 15 all the way to the end of that chapter. And the way also that he prayed for them that they might be individuals who know something of what God has done to make us who we are in Christ Jesus. And then out of this the Apostle Paul particularly picked the issue of the power of God in saving sinners. The power of God in bringing us from death and finally taking us to glory. And it is this that he then brings into the second chapter in applying it to us as those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says at the beginning of chapter 2, and you were dead. So just the way in which he, the power of God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in heaven, the same power is at work in us, in him doing exactly the same for us. And he found us dead in trespasses and sins. Last week, we opened all that up in looking at the way in which we were spiritually dead. And we saw that being dead in sin is realized in the way in which we are in a threefold enslavement. And I hope you remember that. Enslavement to the world, enslavement to the devil, 
and enslavement to our own fallen nature. The Apostle Paul put it this way. We just read it. That you were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air. And you were also carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And then he capped it up by saying that therefore, by nature, we were objects of the wrath of God. It makes sense because God hates sin. God must punish sin. And therefore, if that's the condition in which we are, following the ways of sin, because we are dead in sin, then it only makes sense that God's wrath should be hanging over our heads, awaiting the moment of sinking us deeper than the grave into the flames of hell. Well, that's the condition in which grace finds us. Today, we are then moving on to consider the way in which we now get saved. And I hope you will notice there that since dead people cannot save themselves, so out of question, the moment you are dead, it's not up to you to do something. It must be up to a life giver to infuse life into you. And therefore, it is left to God and to God alone. And that's the reason why our text begins with the phrase, but God. Because we are in a hopeless situation. It's not but the preacher. Because no human being can give life to the dead. Zero. So it's not but the preacher. And worse still, it is not but you. Because you are dead. So obviously, we should not even bring you into the picture here. It's not even but Angel Gabriel or Angel Michael, the archangel. Because even angels cannot give life to the dead. There's only one being in the entire universe. In fact, he is from outside that universe from whom we can have any hope whatsoever and it is God. But God. And the only reason why we should have hope that this divine being will come into our situation and give life to the dead is because of his character. Because of his character. His attributes. And in this particular case, it is his attributes of goodness. Allow me to skip verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6, and then get to verse 7, because Paul will come right back to what he is talking about. But now, from the perspective of eternity, 
when the whole of history is over and we are now seeing our salvation from that end, what will we see? Verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Notice the phrase, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. That word kindness there is simply, again, the word goodness. That's all it is. That the, the, the attributes of goodness that are true in God, but they are riches, but more than that, they are immeasurable riches. That word simply means today we would be saying infinite riches. That that's where our hope lies. That's the only reason why there will be any sinners in heaven. It's because God is rich in goodness. Back to our text. Because what Paul does is he opens up the goodness of God with three phrases. The first is mercy. The second is love. And the third is grace. Look at those three and we will be done. First of all, he is saying that our hope lies in the fact that God is rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. Verse 4. But God being rich in mercy. That's the only reason why. God being rich in mercy. What is this attribute of mercy? What makes it different from love? What is it that makes mercy different from grace? Well, mercy is an attribute of goodness. It's, it's an aspect of goodness. But what it does is it emphasizes the suffering and pain of its object. It, it's speaking about a person who is sympathetic. That's basically the, the attribute of mercy. So what's happening here is that God is a being who sympathizes with the suffering of, of course, those who are made in his image. And because he is one who sympathizes that way, he consequently has acted in order to change the situation from a state of suffering to a state of the joy. And that's the mercy that is being spoken about in this particular text. It is, with respect to us as human beings, we all know it. If, as we are in this room right now, if uh, the toddlers, the children, are playing in the foyer, and one of them gets hurt, 
and begins to cry, all of you in here, something will happen to you. All of you. The moment you just hear the, 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 the sound of pain that is emanating from the foyer, I will know that I've lost your concentration. Because something in you will make you want to do something about it. Now, if there is a mother among us, and mothers tend to know that that is now my child, that mother will immediately, she won't even begin to process, should I listen to this sermon a little further? No, 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 no. It will be an automatic disappearance out there into the foyer to rescue. Because the mother has that level of sympathy that obviously none of us have here. Or at least the rest of us. Now, when the Apostle Paul is talking here, he's going beyond our normal sense of sympathy. He's going beyond the immediate sense of sympathy of a mother. He is now reaching the sympathy of God himself. And that's the reason why he brings in that phrase, riches. Riches. Notice there. But God being rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. In other words, God has the, a, a store of mercy that goes beyond any of us. God has the capacity of mercy that is infinitely Huge, beyond compare. It is a mercy, therefore, that enables him to reach into the depths of our despair. So that although we are dead, he reaches out to us. Now, I said sympathy might be in the realm of feelings. So the rest of us here, we hear the cry and we, we sympathize. Therefore, we get disturbed a little bit. The mother's sympathy goes beyond feeling. She goes into action. She rushes out. And once she sees the, the, the little toddler maybe with some blood coming out from the arm or the face or whatever, she quickly picks the baby, runs into the, uh, the bathroom and tries to help. And if it is beyond that, she jumps into the vehicle, zooms off immediately to the clinic or hospital. She goes into action. What is it that God has done out of this mercy? Now, if we look back at our text, this verse is a little complicated simply because the Apostle Paul is packing things in. But otherwise, the actual statement itself, if we can remove the things in between that he has packed, is simply this. But God, being rich in mercy, skip, 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 made us alive together with Christ. That's the actual statement. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. In other words, he infused life into us. He infused life into us. 
That's what he has done. When did he do this? Well, he did it, first of all, when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's why the verse says they made us alive together with Christ. In other words, when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, we were raised from the dead in him. Because in terms of covenant, whatever Jesus was doing, he was doing it on our behalf. As our substitute, he died our death on Calvary. So when we ask the question, when were our sins paid for, we don't say, well, you know, when I received Jesus Christ as my Savior, that's when my sins were paid for. Nonsense. They were paid for the moment Jesus breathed his last. When he died on the cross, my sins, were actually paid for in him. In the same way, when was it that God took that act that gives me life though I was dead? It already happened when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Let's go further because it gets more complex. We're still here on earth. But in Christ, we've arrived in heaven. We have. Let's read it in there. Verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So as far as God is concerned, the fact that Jesus died, the fact that he rose again, the fact that he ascended to heaven, the fact that he seated at the right hand of the Father, each of these steps has been done for us in him. It's been accomplished. And therefore, when we now begin to experience these things, it is simply a mop-up operation. That's all it is. It's a mop-up operation. Otherwise, in Christ, it is done. Because that power that raised him from the dead has defeated everything that needs to be defeated to finally bring us to heaven. So that's the first answer. That it was in Christ. It's been done. But secondly, it was on the day of our salvation. Individually of our salvation. And I think, again, it's important that we capture that. That on that day when you get saved, each one of you, that's assuming you are saved, on that particular day, the first thing that happened was not that you decided. How do you decide when you are dead? Hmm? 
Dead people don't decide. The first thing that happened was your regeneration. It was the Holy Spirit infusing spiritual life in you. That's the first thing that happened. It was God making you alive spiritually. Infusing that life into you. And it was because he had infused that life into you that you were therefore enabled to call on the Savior that he might indeed save you. And that's the reason why when you, you finish speaking about your state of being dead, dead, dead in your sins, dead in your trespasses, the next statement is not I. It is but God. Because of his mercy made me alive together with Christ. So that's the first. It is a mother that's rising out of her pew and rushing out to rescue. And in this particular case, it is God because of the attribute of mercy who consequently infuses spiritual life into me though I was dead. In a sense, it was done already in Christ, but in another sense, it happens on the day of my conversion. But let's hurry on. So the first is that God is rich in mercy. He has that attribute in him that sympathizes with my state of death, my state of suffering, the pain that is as a result of that or as a result of where it is going because ultimately it was going to be hell. But number two, our hope lies in the fact that God has loved us greatly. God has loved us greatly, despite our state. So there it is. But God, being rich in mercy, that's not enough for the Apostle Paul. So what does he do? He, he squeezes in another phrase there. Because of the great love with which he has loved us. Because of the great love with which he has loved us. What's the difference between mercy and love? Well, as I said again, these are all aspects of goodness. In this particular case, God's goodness. Mercy has to do with sympathy because somebody is suffering or may suffer and therefore you move into action. Something in you causes you to do that. Love speaks about a commitment to the welfare of others. A commitment to the welfare of others. That's what love is. It is an individual who is always wanting to do things so that your situation might be better. 
your situation might be better. Now, granted, you know, the, the, there are different aspects of love as well, but that's really the heart of it. And the primary sense of love is not that you are lovable. In other words, you yourself are attracting love for yourself. But the essential nature of love is in the heart of the person who is acting. That he is with that characteristic. He's with that attribute. He is himself a good person. And consequently, even when he doesn't know you in terms of the details of who you are, he just sees your state and he says to himself already at that point, let me help. Let me help. And it is that which signals what true love is. Now, with respect to our condition, Paul goes on to bring this point out that God's love is a love, first of all, that goes back to eternity. Remember uh, chapter 1 and verse, uh, verse 4. Let's go back to chapter 1 and verse 4. I'll begin reading from verse 3. This is really answering the question, when did God love us? When did he make us the object of his love? And he says, the blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him, there it is already, in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then we find that phrase. In love, he predestined us for adoption, sons, through Jesus Christ. So in eternity, already, he, out of love, made us the object of his salvation. In eternity, when he chose us in election, he then made us the objects of his love, saying, I will save them. And therefore, the Apostle Paul is able to add here, even when we were dead in trespasses, in our trespasses. In other words, God acted even in eternity despite knowing that we would be individuals who would be in, under the power of death, defying him because of sin. His love was from eternity given to us and has continued even in our state of sin, despite the fact that by nature we deserve his wrath, he is not pouring his wrath upon us, but he is acting still in love. And the best way to understand this is to go back 2,000 years ago and to see what that love did. 2,000 years ago when Jesus went to the cross the Bible says 
in John 3.16. You don't need to turn to it because you've memorized it, I know. For God so loved the world. What world? A world in sin. A world in rebellion. A world that is defiant to his rule. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. So he did not only love in eternity, but bearing in mind that rebellion, he already committed himself to saving. And therefore, even despite the world going into that state of the fall and being in utter rebellion, he is still so committed to salvaging these souls that he even gives his son to say, out of love, you will pay their price. No wonder Paul in our text doesn't just say because of the love with which he loved us, but he says because of the great love with which he loved us. The great love. Again, bring out something of this richness of love, this richness of love. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. Romans 8, verse 32. In Romans 8, 32, he doesn't use the word love, but later on in verse 39, he uses it. But still, the point is made. Let me begin with verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Now that's love. That's love. Not sparing his own son. Gives him up to rescue us. And then in verse 39, he's basically answering the question, what shall separate us from this love? And then he says there, no height, no depth, no anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how great this love is. And it is what moved God to save us. It's what moved God. So it is mercy. It is love. And then thirdly, it is grace. Back to our text. Back to our text. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul adds, by grace you have been saved. Now, what he's saying there is that we are saved because out of God's goodness, out of his good, out of his sheer goodness, he made us alive, and therefore 
he saved us by grace. If you look at your Bible and the words that are there, I hope you can see that that little phrase has just been squeezed in. It's not part of the sentence. It's not part of the unfolding of the sentence. And therefore, the, the translators had to find a way to, to, to put it in without it confusing the flow. And so it, they put what in um, editorial work is called an M dash. An M dash. The, the long dash. That long dash. A comma was going to confuse them. So they just put in a dash. At least in my version, I hope they've done the same in yours. Uh, and, and, and they just said, by grace you've been saved. It's just thrown in there. Because it's, it's as though to say, it's a fact. It's a fact. By grace you have been saved. Again, very quickly. What's the difference between mercy and love? I think we've sorted that one out. What about grace? Why not just say love? Why bring in that word grace? What, what, what is the extra that it adds which love was not going to be sufficient, which mercy is not going to be sufficient? When you speak about grace, you are now speaking about the relationship that is already there between the person loving and the person being loved. And what you are saying is that it's a very bad relationship. And it's a bad relationship because the person that is being rescued has done something wrong to the person rescuing. That's when you start talking about grace. It's no longer just love. It's no longer just mercy. It is grace. Um, it, it's like if I was to, to come here and announce that, uh, you know, Brother John, uh, his, his uh, home is, is about to be taken away from him because he's owing, you know, the bank, uh, maybe an extra 100,000 kwacha perhaps, and then, you know, so if we don't do anything about it tomorrow, he's going to have to, to sleep under a tree or something. So let, let's try and put together some money. You know, if each one of us can just put um, 1,000 kwacha, um, judging by the numbers here, we should be able to, to reach um, the 100,000 and we'll rescue him. And then for you, uh, John had stolen your car and got involved in an accident. That's it. He destroyed your car. So when you hear that announcement, your heart is going, yeah, about time he slept outside. <laughs> That's what your heart is saying. Okay. Now, the, the reason why your heart is saying that way, rather than being sympathetic, is because of the relationship. 
Because of the relationship. He has soured the relationship because of what he did to you. So even when the offering bag is going around, you're thinking, ah, I think this is the time I should go and visit the toilet now, you know. You want to go out before the, the offering bag reaches your pew, you see. You're, you're not likely to be sympathetic. You're not likely to be, to be moved to, to about his plight. You're not likely to, to act in love to, for his welfare. You won't do that. Because of the bad relationship that is there between you. Unless, of course, you have got the attribute, the characteristic of a graciousness. Because if you are gracious, then you are a person who overlooks that bad relationship in order for you to act for the person's good. And thank God he's a gracious God. That in his goodness, he's not just a merciful God, he's not just a loving God, he is a gracious God. And therefore, even when by nature we deserve his wrath, that's what we deserve, his wrath, he instead acts to save us. And hence, the Apostle Paul there has to, to squeeze it in. To squeeze it in. It's not just a mother about to rush out because she gave birth to that child. No. It is individuals who deserve wrath. Because they've been offensive to him. They've been defiant to him. They've been rebellious to him. They've been disobedient to him. And then this God reaches out to save them. Can you imagine this? That he gives his best. He gives his own son. Puts him on a cross. That's grace. That's grace. To borrow the picture that uh, John Newton uses, it's amazing grace. That's the way he puts it. Amazing grace. And Paul just couldn't help but fit it there. By grace you have been saved. Surely it is by grace because we were dead, not just dead, dead in trespasses, in trespasses, in sins. And God reaches out to save us. When was this grace given? First of all, in eternity. Because when God was choosing us to become objects of salvation, he had the whole of history before his very eyes. And therefore, it was sinners that were being chosen and being given to the Son that the Son might pay the price for their sin. So even then, it was already grace. Number two, it was grace 
when he gave his son. Because he was giving his son to die on the cross for sinners. Sinners. So it wasn't just God so loved the world. It was God was being gracious to sinners. That he should give his son grace. Infinite grace even then. It was also grace on the day of your salvation. That day when he was infusing life into you, you were not deserving. It was not because you, you were more clever or cleverer than your friend. No. You were both dead, both deserving of hell. Why did he infuse spiritual life into you and not into your friend or your brother or your sister who was there with you? Why you? By grace, you have been saved. You didn't deserve it. It's all been grace and grace and grace. So, as we wrap up, when you think about your salvation, Don't begin with yourself. Eh? Someone asks you, how, how did you become a Christian? I decided, nonsense. You were dead. What decision were you making? Eh? God reached out to me. You should be able to say, this is the way my life was. In rebellion, in sin, in wickedness, in evil. And whatever the details might be, don't give it all out because it's terrible. It's trash. It's like going into a sewer to start pulling things out there. Sorry, spare us. It's enough. But this is what we want to hear the most. But God. But God. But God. This God of mercy, this God of love, this God of grace, this God who is good, infinitely good, immeasurably good, reached out to me and saved me. That's why I am who I am today. And we are not denying. The fact that at some point you heard the gospel, at some point you, you, you recognize you were a sinner and, and you, you trusted in Jesus and so on. We're not denying all those things. Yes, they were real. It happened. You were in a meeting or somebody spoke to you and so on. Yes, there was a decision that was made. We're not denying all those things. But what we are saying is this, that that was what followed the infection fusion of that spiritual life. When your blind eyes became open. When from death you were made alive. 
And you saw the flames that were encroaching upon your soul. And therefore you cried, Savior, Savior, save me. And consequently, he finished what he had secretly begun in your soul. The infusion of spiritual life. But God, but God, but God. And you notice how easily here the Apostle Paul quickly includes himself. Eh? He had begun by saying, and you, this one, and you were dead in trespasses and sins and so on. You! But as it comes to verse 4, he says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Loved us. Paul could not help but bring, him in, bring himself into there. We were dead. But he has saved us. Are you conscious of your own guilt before God today? Don't, don't try and say, well, let, let me get myself ready. Let, let, let me try and better myself. Let, let, let me try and go to church and, and, and let me try and do this and let me try and do this. No, it, it's not about you. It's about the fact that there is a good God in heaven. A good God. A God of mercy. A God of love. A God of grace. To try and somehow bring yourself into the equation. That's a dead end. It's a dead end. There's no salvation there. Rather, it is recognized and utterly rely upon this one fact that the God of heaven is utterly God. And on that basis, and on that basis alone is your hope that in this my salvation lies. So throw yourself out of the picture and just look to him because it is in who he is that our hope for salvation lies. He's a good God. 